Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you. We ask that you bless this time as we look at your word. You guide and lead us and, and help us to see what you would have us to see in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 34. The Lord heard the voice of your words and was wroth and swore, saying, Surely there shall not one of these men of this evil generation see the good land which I swore to give unto your father, save Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him I will give the land that he has trodden upon, and his children, because he has wholly followed the Lord. The Lord was angry with me for your sake, saying, You also shall not go in thither. But Joseph, the son of Nun, which stands before you, he shall go in thither, encourage him, and he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Moreover, your little ones, which you said would be prey, and your children, which in that day had no knowledge between good and evil, they shall go in thither, and unto them will I give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn you and take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And we're going to stop there because there's a few things I want to bring out in this. We look at this and we're continuing Moses' reiteration of their wanderings. And we look here and it says, The Lord heard the voice of your words. And if we look back, and this was them complaining. Every time they turned around, they complained. And Moses is talking about how that brought that judgment upon them. And he says, and God heard your words, and he said, Surely not one of these men of this evil generation that has seen this good land, which I swore to give to you, will enter into this land. And we all know they wandered around for 38 years in the wilderness. A total of 40 from the time they left Egypt to the time they entered in was 40. But they wandered around the desert for 38 years. One year getting the, the uh, Ten Commandments and all the rules and building the tabernacle, and approximately a year conquering the Amorites and all these other people that they conquered on the east side of the Jordan. But they were told, none of you will go in except for Caleb. And it said, he will get the land that he trod on. And, and after this, we see also Joseph, uh, Joshua. And those two were the, were the spies that said, we can take this land. <laughs> I always loved them when I read about them. You know, we can take this land. You know, uh, God will give it to us. Verse 37 is one that I want to look at, though. Moses does not go into the promised land. Why does he not go into the promised land? Because he struck the rock. He struck the rock when God said, speak to it. I want to look at this one and say that it wasn't because he struck the rock, but because he never asked forgiveness for it. Because look at this statement. It says, Also the Lord was angry with me for your sakes, saying, You shall not enter into there. I truly have come since reading this verse to believe that Moses did not go into the promised land. Yes, it was primarily because he struck the rock, but for every place that you see, this is the statement that Moses says. You all are the reason that I'm not going into the promised land. Not, I got so mad I struck the, at you guys that I struck the rock and I messed up, but you, you guys, you're the reason I'm not going in the promised land. I believe that he never asked for forgiveness, and I believe that if he'd asked for forgiveness, God would have let him go in to the land. But nowhere, every time you read what he says, he blames the people for his not going into the promised land. And this just shows you that 
God, if you don't want to ask for forgiveness, God will say, fine, you don't need to be forgiven and you won't get the rewards for not being forgiven. Yeah, but there's all, not yeah, but, there's no yeah, but. There's also the element of, he's teaching the people, God has one way. And he broke that one way, and he's being punished for it. And they will be too. If Moses is punished for it, then surely we will be too. But you are right. But the statement always should have been, I got so mad at you that I do not get to go into the promised land. Which was his fault. Which was because his fault. Reads, also the Lord was angry with me for your sakes. Mm -hmm. So he's blaming them. He's still blaming them. It wasn't his fault that he struck. He basically saying, it's not my fault I struck that rock twi twice in my, in my anger. He's saying, you guys, you guys made me do this. And this is what he's going to say. Every single place you see him complaining about not going into the promised land, it's always the same thing. Because of you. Because of you. Because of you. It wasn't, I, you know, my temper got the better of me and I struck the rock. You know, it is completely their fault. Every place, he, every place he says this. And this is why I say, I really believe that if he had ever gone to God and said, God, I am really sorry that I struck the rock. I got so... I got so mad at the people that I <laughs> struck the rock and, 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 and sinned, God probably would have said, okay, I forgive you. You can at least enter. I don't think he would have been in there long enough to conquer. It seems like it took him over 40 years to conquer. But everywhere you're going to read, it's going to be, you're going to see this statement, you guys, you guys, you're the reason I don't get to go in. Never saw the fact that it was his sin that kept him from going in. And this is something we want to be very careful of. We can lose a lot of blessings when we refuse to accept that we're the ones at fault, that we are the ones that have sinned, that we're the ones that have caused the problem. Moses doesn't, and we see him not going into the promised land, and I'm very, like I said, I'm very convinced that it, the reason he didn't go in is not necessarily for striking him, but the fact that he never admitted that it was his sin. And it, and it was a big sin because the rock represented Jesus Christ, and he was only supposed to speak to it and have the rock pour out water because the rock had already been struck. So he, messed, he did mess up the whole picture of Jesus Christ. But I do believe it's also his lack of repentance and humbleness to say that it was his fault. Moses had quite a temper, and he always blamed others for his temper. He was like most people with a temper. It's not my fault. It's not my temper. It's them. Okay. He came down off the mountain, and off the Sinai the first time, and what did he do? He busted the Ten Commandments in his anger. Uh, Moses gets angry with the people frequently. That's why he gets kicked out of Egypt in the first place, for killing the Egyptian, for, for beating the, the Hebrew. And he runs for his life. He does all kinds of things to get in trouble because of his temper and never really truly accepts that it's his temper. And this is something you see almost, if you know anybody with a bad temper, it's never their fault. It's always somebody else's fault. They pushed me so far that I just lost. I went off on them. And this is what Moses is saying. And this is where we're at. And, and like I said, you're going to see this over and over and over again. This is what Moses says. And, and this story, of course, comes from Numbers 20. And I just want to read what happens in Numbers 20, 10, verse 20, Numbers 20, verse 10. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock. And he said unto them, Hear 
Now, you rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and with the rod he smote the rock twice, and the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beast also. And the Lord spoke unto Moses and Aaron, saying, Because you believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this congregation into the land that I have given them. And this is the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel strove with the Lord, and he was sanctified in them. Again, even at this point, there's nothing really why Moses got mad, because they've already been griping and grumbling. God has told him how he's going to give them water, and then he gets this attitude when he, when he I mean, you read the whole chapter, and, and Moses just has an attitude on this, on this whole event. Uh, I, you know, he's mad at the people. He's, he's kind of probably fed up with them, and I understand that idea of being fed up with them. Every time they turn around, they're complaining about water, about food, about, you know, they don't like, there's not enough water, there's, you know, they don't like the manna, they want, they want flesh to eat, they remember the old days in Egypt or the world where they got all the stuff they wanted, supposedly, you know, and it's amazing how easy it is for us to forget what we have with God and see the world as something good when we were sick and tired of the world and wanted God to get out of the out of the world, and then we get God, and we get familiar with God, and then we then kind of miss the world. And this happens over and over in, in, in the scriptures and in Christianity itself. You know, people will forget, you know, they, they were drunk and on drugs and got out of it, and God delivered them, and then they remember the quote-unquote fun times they had with that stuff, you know, after a while, and forget all the negative stuff. And God this was what the children of Israel were doing. They got out of the land of Egypt and immediately said, well, gee, we had all kinds of garlic and onions and cucumbers and melons, and it was so good to have that variety of food. They probably had it once a month, maybe. <laughs> you know, uh, and in between was the beatings and the, and the harsh labor. They, they go in and go, well, we, you know, we had all this stuff. You know, we had water. <laughs> you know, we're, we're suffering here. But how often do we do the same thing in our life? Start longing after the things of the world that God delivers us from. Very frequently we do this as Christians. And God says, don't do this. And Moses was so fed up with the people, the, you know, he was angry with them, even though God had already told him, just speak to the rock and I'm going to give you water. But you hear that tone in there, you rebel, shall I give you water? He did everything wrong in that, in that speech to the people. He had a major attitude. And God says, okay, you're not going into the promised land. But remember, I've also said this several times. When we forget that what we have is the benefit of God, we start taking it for granted and we, we become unsatisfied with it. And, we're go and we look at, what have you done now for me, God? You know, you provided for me, you provided all these blessings, and, and, and we get to the place where we start thinking the blessings are the norm, and we're going, God, what have you done lately for me? Instead of, God, thank you for the blessings you've given me. I look at it with the job that I have at the prison. It's paying the bills. Before, we were always looking at, how, God, how are you going to give us the money? And God had to do miraculous things. Right now, I've got the job from the prison. I don't want to get familiar with that and say, you know, okay, this is just normal. This has been a blessing from God. Getting that job was, was pretty miraculous in and of itself, the way it all worked out and came about. So we want to be very careful with how do we look at God's blessing. It is so easy for us to say, God, thank you for these blessings, and then a month or a year later we're going, okay, God, you know, I want some blessings, you know. 
I, I have a house. I have uh, my bills are all paid. I've got a, all the vehicles. You know, everything is paid. All the bills are getting paid. Okay, God, what, what, what are you doing now? And we get jaded, and we exactly. see, and we see this with the children of Israel, how jaded they were. God delivers them, defeats Egypt, takes them through the Red Sea, and the very first thing they're doing is complaining that they're thirsty. So we want to get to this place where we recognize the blessings of God and not be jaded and unsatisfied because we get used to his blessing. Because you know what? If you start being upset about God's blessing, he might just take the blessing away for a while and say, well, let me show you how much you're being blessed. And then we're going, oh, no, 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 God, come back. Give me back my, give me back my blessings. And this is why we need to stay focused on what he's doing. What is God doing in our life? How is he blessing us? Today of the, at the prison, I was talking about spiritual blindness being, being taken away. How often do we get blinded to the spiritual world and quit seeing God in, in, in action around us? One of the things I have found over the 44 years of walking with God is I see him at work more and more in everything in my life. And I've shared with you, I used to love going into the restaurant and telling people, you know what God did for me yesterday? Are we focused on what God is doing? Do we realize that God is at work in our life all the time? Even when everything seems to be going wrong, God is at work. Nothing comes our way that he does not allow as a test. So if we get grumpy and complaining because things seem to be going bad, we're failing the test he's sending our way. How, do we, how are we supposed to react when everything seems to be going wrong? Thank you, God, that, you're word, that I'm worthy of being tested. Like the disciples, like, like Job. You know, think about this. If you think about Job on the first two chapters of Job, which he has no idea what's going on, Satan's going around, God shows up with God, and God asks him, what are you doing? I've been going, going around. He goes, who was the one that pointed out Job? It wasn't Satan who pointed out Job. God. God said, have you considered my servant Job? He's a good and perfect man who hates evil. And Job and Satan goes, of course I've considered him, but you've got his hedge around him. I can't touch him. And God says, okay, you, you can do this much to him, but you can't kill him. Whatever is going on in our life, unless we're living a sinful life and we're receiving punishment for it, but first thing that bad things are happening, we do look at our life and say, God, am I being, you know, am I deserving this? Have I been sinning and I've not repented? And, you're, and I'm receiving, or even have repented, and I'm receiving the consequences for my sin. And you go and you get done and you say, no, I'm, you know, things are confessed, this isn't or isn't. Then we need to say, all right, God, you're in control. All hell is breaking loose. Everything seems to be going wrong. But God, you're still in control. Thank you for allowing me to be on the witness stand to, to testify about how good you are. This is what is our biblical point of view. If, if God is in control of everything, and he is, nothing in my life, no matter how bad it seems, is outside of his control. I just prayed to God that it wouldn't happen again and said, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Does he believe that? Of course he does. As long as you truly mean it, he knows I it's true. true. Again, 
Are there consequences for sin? Yes, there are consequences for sin. But after you've looked at that and you say, a lot of what we go through is not the consequence of sin. It's God saying one of two things. Do you believe what you say you believe? And is and he's going to let Satan sift us to see if we truly believe it. And this is why I keep saying we need to be able to say with the disciples, thank God that I'm worthy of suffering. Thank you, God, that I am on the witness stand in heaven and Satan is sit, trying to sift me to see, will I follow you or will I deny you? All of this comes down to, are we going to... Now, I am not saying we're always going to understand and that we'll even like what's going on. Okay? Because even though we know that it is God allowing it to happen in our life, that does not mean that I'm going to enjoy what I'm going through. Job did not enjoy what he went through. And this is, this is where we get moving along with God, and God says, I've got this for you. Sometimes it is, you know, we're, we, we're reaping what we've sown, and, that's, and sometimes it's a long time in the past. But other times it's just God saying, let's see how you're going to react. Lynn and I went down when I first took over being a pastor and went down to a pastor's meeting and our car breaks down. Okay? I'm making $50 a week. It's summertime, so she's not making anything. Our car's broken down in Phoenix. And we don't know a lot of people in Phoenix. And I can remember asking God, God, what are you trying to do here? I don't understand this. I know it's going to be for, for good, but I sure don't understand any of this. And everybody else was more worried about it than I was. I mean, all these, all these uh, missionaries and leaders were all worried about how are you getting home? I go, I don't know. It's not time to worry about that. It's not time to go home yet. But God put everything and orchestrated everything in perfect order. And we made it back. We got our car back. Yeah, we had somebody that did it for, for us for free. We ended up being treated to dinner by somebody. God did everything for us. And it was a great blessing in the long run because we got to d meet other people and they got to be a chance to be minister to, to us in that process. God does the miraculous when we just sit back and say, God, I don't know what's going on, but you're active. Job, at the end of everything, got back twice as much physical stuff that he lost and God gave him back children. And if you recall, it said he had the most beautiful daughters of all the land. Now, did they make up for the other ones? No, but I mean, God did everything he could to say, we're going to give you recompense for all of this. We need to be aware, no matter what goes on in our life, God is in control. As bad as it might seem at the moment, God is in control. If you don't like that particular one, remember this story, that the, the saying that I heard about two years ago. If... God's will is what I would choose if I knew everything. Yes. So no matter how bad it seems to me, if God is truly in control, I would choose what he is choosing for me if I knew everything that's going on and everything in the future and how everybody that's watching me is going to be relating to what I've done. Again, it depends. How are we going to react to the things that are happening in our life? Are we going to get uptight and worried and somehow God got out of control, you know, things spun out of God's control for a period of time and I, but isn't that how we react so often? Yes. You know, we react, you know, you laugh about that, but so often we have this, 
we act as if somehow God lost control and is not in control of everything happening in my life. It is everything that happens to us is a faith test. Are we going to trust that God is still in control and that it is for good? And again, as I always say, note, it's not necessarily for my good. It is for good. And this is when our car broke down, there was nothing good about that. It cost us money in the long run to get the car fixed. But it was a blessing to different people who were able to reach out and help and minister. And we see this all the time, how God will allow others the opportunity to minister. And one thing I have learned really well over the years is if God is giving people an opportunity to be a blessing, don't steal their blessing by being too proud to accept that blessing. And this is very important for us. If somebody wants to give you something, even if you don't think you need it, take it because they're going to be blessed. This is a lesson we learned many, many years ago. Somebody wanted to give us money. We didn't feel we needed it. And I took it. And I remember telling them, we got to take it for their blessing. <laughs> and then we gave that money straight to somebody else that maybe needed it more than we did. I don't know. We, we, you know but we used it to be a blessing to somebody else. So, but remember, God is in control, always. Even when everything seems to be spinning out of control and going crazy, God is in control. And nothing is happening that he doesn't know about and is in control of. If Moses, had, if Moses had kept a greater control over that idea that God was always in control, he might not have got as mad at the people as, as, he, as he did all the time. Because it was, a lot of this was a test. The, these people's attitude was a test for Moses to say, are you going to God saying, are you going to trust me? Are you going to stay calm? He failed a lot in that test. So... All right, verse 38. But Joshua, the son of Nun, which stands before you, he shall go hither and encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit the land. Joshua. Joshua has been being raised up the entire 40 years that they're wandering in the, in the, in the wilderness. He has been the general that's gone out to battle many times. He's been the, he's been the leader of all this stuff going on. He's being raised up in the sight of the people, and God says he's taking the people into the promised land. How would you like to be the person who had to follow Moses as the leader of the people? Moses, to this day, is, is considered the greatest leader for Israel. Joshua is pretty much forgotten. You know, he, he took them into the promised land. He fought the battle of Jericho, and that's about, you know, unless they really know their Bible, that's about what they know about Joseph. Uh, Joshua, excuse me. Yeah, you know, he was a lot more of that. He was a great man. You know, they know he led the, the spies. You know, but he is a kind of a forgotten person in many places. If you don't really study the scriptures, this is the man that had to follow Je Moses in, as a leader. But you know what? I don't believe in what little I know about that man that he would have wanted to take one thing away from his his wonderful Moses. Oh, I'm sure he didn't. And you see in the book of Moses, uh, Joshua where, he, where he's looking over the land and you, can know, you know that he's worried and Jesus comes to him. Yeah. And Jesus comes to him and appears to him and says, you're going to be the next leader and you're going to do a good job. Yeah. You think about that. 
and you and you and you kind of think about what does this all mean and and how we sometimes try to compare ourselves one to another. If Joshua had been spending his life comparing himself to Moses, he'd have been one miserable person. But he, was, he had a different land. He had a different rule. He had a different way of walking through. And God blessed him for who he was. A lot of times when pastors take over after another pastor, especially a successful pastor, there's always this, am I going to be good enough for this church mentality? And God says, we're going to take you a different way. And, and people are always looking back. This is what we used to do. <laughs> this is what we were. This is what we used to do. And the thing that you've got to do is move forward from wherever you're at and say, this is the way God's taking us. The Calvary Chapel movement is going through this. They're, they're, their pastor died just a few years ago, their head pastor. And they're going through this whole, who are we now without, without Chuck Smith at the helm? The church that I grew up in, it's been a little bit longer, but they were going through the same process. The, the one who formed the church passed away, and they're going through, who are we now? We lost this great teacher and great leader. Who are we now? This happens frequently with us because we've got to depend on God, and God will then take a new leader and take you in a new direction and say, that's the old. We're going forward in this direction. We do this oftentimes in our own lives sometimes where God's moving us on into some new area and we try to hold on to the past. You know, God, you did great things back here. I wanna, I wanna stay back here. And God said, but I'm over here doing new things. We need to be careful and say, God, what are we doing with you now? Where are you moving to? And be ready to move with God because God is saying, let's go. Sometimes people will stay too long in a position with God because they're not, they're afraid to take the next step. There are people in churches that won't take the first step. I've had people ask me, well, how do I know what my calling is? Go on and start doing some stuff. Spend six months teaching the kids. Well, if you find out you don't like the kids, great. You know, spend six months in the nursery. You don't find, find out you don't like the, the little kids, good. You know, spend six months, you know, Pulling the weeds in the, in the building, you know, the, the church, and find out you don't like that. You know, keep doing things until you find what it is that God has told you to do. And there are, there's things in a church that I am not called to do, and I know that I'm not called to do. So I'm not going to try to do them. I know that I'm called to be the pastor of this church. That I do know. Whatever that means, I'm, I'm called to be the pastor of this church. Will that be the same thing 20 years from now? I don't know. I don't see it changing, but who knows, because God can change anything. I don't think, I, I don't plan to leave here because I think this is where God wants me. But I don't know what God's got in the store for me. Neither did Moses. When Moses left Egypt, he never expected to go back to Egypt to lead the people back out. He'd failed in that job because he thought he was their leader and the rescuer, and he'd failed at that job, and God brought him back 40 years later. But we don't know, a lot of times we don't know what God's calling us to do until we step out and try it. But I do recommend that if you're going to step out and try something, give it enough time so that you know whether it is for you or not. Yeah. Because a lot of times when you first start, you've got one of two extremes. You're either terrified because of something brand new, or you're so excited that you think it's of God whether it is or isn't. So it takes time. And most everybody that I've listened to will say anywhere from three to six months doing something before you can decide whether it is something that God's called you to do. And that's important because it has to be long enough for the newness to wear off and also long enough for you to get past the learning curve of how to do it. 
And then after a while you say, well, this definitely isn't for me, or yes, this is definitely for me. And you'll know whether it's for you or not. If you enjoy doing it more often than not, because there's nothing you're going to do that you're going to like all the time. I'm called to be the pastor of this church, but there are certain things and certain days that it just is wearing down and you're tired and you don't feel it. You don't make a decision at that time. It's not the time to say, because I know that I'm called to do this. I, feel, I soar through those ones saying, okay, I don't understand why, I'm, why it's this way today, but fine, we're going to keep doing my job. But if you get to the end of six, you know, six months and you go, man, I really hate doing this, then go find something else to do. If you get to the end of the six months and say, man, I really enjoy doing this, that's probably what you're called, a area that you're called to do. And that's important for us, to find what it is that we want to do. And it's a little harder in smaller churches because there's not as much to do as there are in bigger churches. But I can guarantee you, we can find plenty to do in this church. There's all kinds of ministries I'd like to see us start if we can just get the people who say, I want to do something. And I will do the same thing I did in College Park when people say, well, the church should be doing this. I'm going, very good. When, how, how would you like to get started? I'll help you get it started. Most of the people didn't want to do it. They had all kinds of wonderful ideas, and they were good ideas. And I'll tell you that they were the ones that were supposed to do it because they had the idea and it was on their heart. I knew that they were supposed to do it. And I, was, you know, and I would be willing to help them get it started, but they needed to be willing to step forward. Everybody wants to pass the buck and get the pastor yeah. to do it. Well, all the time they go, well, we should be doing this, we should be doing it. And usually they're meaning, pastor, you should be doing this. We, we, we. Yeah, it's, you know, pastor, we have 800 ministries we'd like to see you start tomorrow. Yeah. All on your shoulders. All on your shoulders, and that's usually what they mean when they say we, the ministry should be doing this. But if it's on their heart, it really is they should be doing it. Mm-hmm. They should be stretching, stretching forth and saying, wow, I've been burdened to go do the you know, convalescent homes. They probably are the ones that are supposed to go to the convalescent home mm-hmm. and run it. I've been burdened to do you know, this part of the ministry of the church. Or, or see this ministry, it probably is them that are being called. Because I looked at many things that they said, and I'm going, that's a really good idea. I like it. When, when, how can we help you get it started? And I wasn't being facetious. I wasn't being silly. I was, God's put it on your heart. It's your ministry to get started. And I will do everything I can to help you get started. I'll help you get a budget. I'll help you get the people. And we'll see, you, see this get moving. Usually they didn't want to do it because... When God calls people, the usual response is that they're terrified to step forward to do the first step. Or they think that that first step is beneath them and they need to be doing something greater. And God is not going to give you greater if you're not willing to start at something simple. And this is very important for us to understand. God is not going to put you in charge of a mega church if, if, if that's your first church. You better learn at a lower level. You want to learn how to teach a class. You want to learn how to handle the kids. You want, you, know, you want to learn how to handle four or five kids before you have to handle 300 kids. I know, so, I know two men in Baltimore that they can handle four or 500 kids with no problem. I can tell you right off, they didn't start by being able to teach four or 500 kids. They started with that small class of 10, 15, 20 and work as an, or 30 as the assistant teacher and work their way up to where God blessed them to be able to deal with these large groups. 
You don't start at the top. Billy Graham didn't start one day and say, I'm going to be an evangelist and go to the biggest stadium he could find and preach to a million people. I am sure that probably the first couple churches he went to probably didn't have anybody there because they didn't know who he was. Maybe they even forgot that he was coming. You know, this is what happens to evangelists a lot when they're first getting on, the, on their feet. They go to a church and there's a whopping three people and all of them are faithful to the church. They get to the church and the doors are locked because they forgot that they made the appointment for them to come. Nobody is going to forget that they've invited Billy Graham or even Franklin Graham now to their church. Now, if he shows up, they're going to, they're, they've been making plans, they've been advertising it. There's nobody who's going to forget that they invited him to come. Why? Because of how he's put his time in. And we want to be able to see this. We want to see that God blesses the little. He starts out with the small, and you move your way up, and God blesses, and he does great things, but he doesn't start you at the top. Number one, can you imagine if, some, if the first time you ever spoke to somebody, there was a million people in, in front of you? I, I don't have problems with in front of groups, but I'm not sure that I would like to stand in front of a million, you know, 200,000 people in the stadium and another 800,000 on the, on the TV and knowing that they're there. That would be a very terrifying step. Verse 39. Moses going on, Moreover, your little ones, which you said should be prey, and your children, which in that day had no knowledge between good and evil, they shall go in hither, and they, and unto them will I give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn you and take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. So he's reiterating this long story for the people. You know, because you've got to remember, we just got done with it in numbers, I mean, but they had been wandering around for 38 years. The group that he's speaking to have not seen the, the 10 plagues. They did not see the Red Sea. They did not see the, the, the waters being made sweet by throwing the tree in. They did not see Mount Sinai. They did not see the golden calf. They did not see the being given the the Ten Commandments. They did not see the gifts and the, and, the, and the blessing of building the tabernacle. They have not seen any of this. The, the, young, the oldest of them that may have, have some vague recollection, recollection of it, but that's all. This is all brand new to them. This has all been stories at best. Yes, I mean, everybody is dead. Everybody who's 20 years and over is dead. So yes, some of these people have seen a little bit of it. But for the most part, these were babies or not even born that are getting ready to go in to do battle. So this is all new to them. Or, or he's reiterating the stories to make sure that they fully understand it. He's, he's going back over and saying, this is what God did. This is what God did. This is what God did. Because you've got to be in, in mind They've been wandering in the desert for 38 years while all this generation dies. They've seen the victories of, of, uh, on the east side of the Jordan and they're, getting, and they're on the Jordan River. Remember, this is where they're at. They're on the east side of the Jordan River getting ready to cross into the, the Promised Land and, and to fight the Battle of Jericho. They're getting ready to cross. And Moses is reviewing with them everything that their parents had seen. And you can almost imagine as they're hearing the stories, you know, 
they may even be thinking, how could our parents be so stupid as to not, to not trust God after all of these things going on? So you see Moses going through this story, and he's basically saying, you, you all that I'm talking to, you're the one that your parents said were going to die when we crossed into this. You're now you're going to be the ones that go in, in victory. You are the ones that are going in. And then verse... 41, it says, Then they answered and said unto them, We have sinned against the Lord, and we will go and fight according to all that the Lord our God has commanded. And when you had girded up every man his weapon of war, and were ready to go up into the hill, the Lord said, Say unto them, Go not up, neither fight, for I am not among you, lest you be smitten. Remember, when they said, We're not going into the promised land, God said, Fine, you're going to wander in the desert for 40 years. And remember that they said, Well, let's go, let's go. God said, We're going to go, we're going to go now. We tend to do this with God a lot. God says go. We say no. God says fine, then we'll let you wander a little while. And we go, oh, well, maybe I'll go. And try to do things. It's too late because now we're doing it in our strength and not God's strength. And we end up getting beat up, embarrassed. This was the same thing that happened to Moses in, in Egypt. Moses, it is believed, knew that he was or believed that he was the deliverer of the people. He went out and tried to do it in his own strength, was chased away because he did things wrong, went in the backside of the desert for 40 years, and when God said, it's time for you to go do what, I, what you thought you were supposed to do anyway, he goes, nope, not me. I've already tried it. Fa- you know, been there, done that, failed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. now, that's basically what he was saying. Been there, done that, failed. I'm not going back. You're not going to make me go back. And he gave him all kinds of excuses on why he couldn't do it. And God says, you're going. <laughs> you know, you're going. You're the man. You are the deliverer. You were just ahead of, you just tried to do it in your own strength. And this is where we need to be very careful. That we don't try to serve God in our own strength, in our own way. And this is why it is very important that we keep in contact with God. Know what it is he's calling us to do. Know what it is he's gifted us to do. Somebody who is a gifted teacher is probably not called to be the parking lot attendant to park the cars. They may or may not be, but that's probably not. If they're gifted as a teacher, that's probably not where they're best used in a church. The person who's very friendly, outgoing, and, and likes to help people out is good for the parking lot, but probably not your teacher. Okay, you know, their, their job is somewhere else and they're sitting there trying to teach is not going to necessarily be the case. Can the two match? Yes, they can. But we need to know what is God asking us to do? How is he working with us? Nothing wor- is worse than doing a job that God has not called you to do. I've seen men who want to be pastors who aren't called to be pastors and, they, and everything about the job is a pain in the neck to them. They don't like the teaching. They don't like making the phone calls. They don't like making the visits. They don't like going to the hospital. They don't like saying, talking to people. And it's like, well, why are you a pastor? Well, I just feel I should be a pastor. <laughs> well, no, I don't think God's gifted you to be the pastor. Go find something that God has gifted you to do. Very important that we find what it is that he's gifted us to do. Joshua is going to be called to be the leader. He's not going to feel very much like a leader. We see that in Joshua, at the beginning of Joshua, where he's, 
in a panic, and he's rightfully in a panic. He, all he's ever been is the general of the army doing what he was told by Moses. He's been a good follower, a good direction taker, and now he's going to lead the people. He's not going to have somebody else out there telling him what to do. He has to do it. So we see here that the people go up, and they get ready to fight, and God delivers them into the enemy's hand. They get beat, and they get royally beaten because they decided they were going to go obey God too late. After God had said, no, you're not going, then they go, oh, we're going to go. I have seen this many times. I have done this many times. <laughs> but I've seen it done many, many more times where people say, well, I think God told me to do it, but you know, he's not, I don't know that he's telling me now. And they go do it and get royally thrashed because they're doing it when God, outside of God's timing. God will probably bring you back around after he's given you a little bit of training. He did that with Moses. He did that with a number of people. Said, okay, you didn't want to do it when I told you, so let's go show you, let's go train you a little bit and it'll bring you back. Because one thing that's true is God's calling is his calling. Whether you immediately obey it or delay in your obedience on it, your calling is not going to be repented of. If you're a teacher, you're a teacher. He may have to walk you around the wilderness for a few years and teach you how to listen to him and be proper in your teaching, but he'll bring you back to being a teacher. He will train you. He will, he will motivate you. None of our life is totally wasted. When we walk away from God and don't do what he's told us to do, God will train us and build us up and he'll use what he's training us to do to minister later on. You look at somebody like Samson. Samson did everything possible wrong, and God still used him. Now, he did have his spots. He didn't get used. I don't believe he got used anywhere near the way he was supposed to be used, and he, that he would have been used if he'd honored God. But God still used him. After he lost his hair with Delilah and lost his strength, and he finally started realizing that his strength was in God, not his hair, and he humbled himself and he prayed to God. God allowed him to bring the entire temple of Dagon down upon the people's, upon the, uh, all the worshipers of Dagon and himself. And it says that he killed more people in his death than in the entire battles he had had. And he had a lot of people he killed in the past, before that. But God said, you now recognize it. Let me make you a mighty man. We see... Uh, Balak and Deborah and De Balak loses his blessing that he would have gotten the honor because he would not step out and do what he was told to do and he goes I'll only go with, out to battle if you go with me and, and Deborah said fine then you don't get to kill the general it'll be the woman that kills the general and he didn't get to kill the general the woman drove the tent stake through his, through his temple so God will do things and he will say, okay, you're not going to get as much blessing as you would have had if you had been obedient, but you're still going to do it. And Balak still went to war. He still led the army out. He just didn't get the blessings he was supposed to get. Saul did not obey God and started walking away from God and then lost the kingdom because he wouldn't be obedient. He 
wanted to do things his way. Verse 43, So I spoke unto you, and you did not hear, but rebelled against the commandment of the Lord, and went presumptuously up into the hill. The Amorites, which dwelt in the mountain, came out against you, and chased you as bees do, and destroyed you in Seir unto Hormoth. And this is, they royally beat the, the people who went up rebelliously. They lost thousands of people because they tried to do things their way. And this is something we have to be very careful of. Don't be doing things our way. Be patient on, with God. Don't get so patient, though, that you don't do anything. That's the other side of the coin. I've seen people who get so patient with God, they're going, well, until God kicks me in the butt and, and physically tells me in a voice in my ear that I'm going to do this, I'm not doing anything. No, that's going too far the other way. But we don't also want to be presumptuous, and especially if you're somebody like myself who is an administratively gifted person who's going to make something happen, whether it's supposed to happen or not. I have to be very careful that I don't make things happen that God doesn't, isn't trying to make happen because that's my personality. I, will don't, I don't give up. So I have to be careful not to try to push something that God has not started. And we need to walk a very fine line between the two extremes of not doing anything until God kicks us in the butt and, and the other side of being presumptuous and doing things that we're not supposed to do. And it's a hard line to walk. And I have failed in both directions at various times in my life. You know, making, trying hard to make something happen and sitting back and waiting until I feel absolutely sure that God says to do it. And that's, it's hard both ways. And it's very hard to listen to God's voice and hear sometimes. And it's learning to slow down, get into his word, and listen. Listen for that still, small voice because God is not going to scream over our activity. If you want to stay so busy that you stay overly active, God is not going to be screaming over your activities. He's going to just say, well, when you slow down and you finally give up, I will tell you what to do. And then what you usually end up doing, because you tried so hard to make something happen, you go too far the other direction and say, well, I just give up. I'll wait till God drops it in my lap with a signed note from heaven saying, do this. And he doesn't do that either. It's, it's hard sometimes to listen and obey. It takes practice. The more you do it, the easier it gets. The more you hear his voice, the easier it gets to listen and obey. But it takes time. It takes being in his word. It takes time listening to him. It takes, it takes time following and obeying. I'm doing much better after 44 years of listening to him and hearing his voice. Am I perfect in it? No, I never will be. I don't expect to be. If we get perfect, then we'll be Enoch and Elijah, and God will take us home because we're so close to him that listening to him, he'll just take us home and say, okay, you're there. I don't expect to ever be there. But I'm getting better. I'm, it's getting easier to listen. Sometimes what's terrifying is wanting something so bad, and you've heard his voice, and then you think you've heard his voice because it's what you want to hear, and then down the road you realize, boy, did you make a blunder because it wasn't him. I've had, I've had my share of those things that have hurt the family because I made mistakes with where God went. Or thinking I was going where God wanted and saying, oh man, did I really mess up here? 
And in the process, it wasn't just me who got hurt, especially as a father, it was my wife and my kids that got hurt. And this is a bad place to look at when you say, man, this is how much, and now I'm a pastor and I have to be very doubly careful because now it's not just my family that can get hurt, it's an entire church that could get hurt if I don't listen carefully to God. And this is why we look for this, this is why we look for people to help us understand when God is saying, do something. It's why it's good sometimes to ask somebody, this is what I'm thinking God is saying. You know, because sometimes you know, somebody might look at you and say, are, are, you, are you absolutely out of your mind? That's not even scriptural. <coughs> and, and, you know, and you need that person sometimes to be able to say that. Or, as I mostly will say is, here's what God says in the Bible. You know, you have to kind of figure out what you, what you want to do. Because I'm never going to tell somebody this is what you're supposed to do or not supposed to do because I don't want them looking at me and saying it's your fault. Yeah. And you know, there was a man who was told to marry a heart, but no, she wasn't a harlot. She was a prostitute. She got paid. And he was told to marry her, and he was a righteous, holy man, but he was met. He, and, and that's used as an example of why this could work for me. I did it myself. Mm -hmm. But that's not why God had him marry him. He wanted the people to see that's what they were doing to him. Yeah. And I would have hated to have been his, him trying to tell his parents that. Oh. You know, you're, who I'm marrying and why, and they're probably saying, Are you, you're totally out of your mind. There's no way God told you to marry that person. So, right. you know, and that's the other side of things is sometimes people are going to tell you you didn't hear from God. And you need to actually consider what they're saying, yeah. you know, but also be willing to say, no, nope, God is telling me this. And I've been there at times, too, where people are saying, there's no way that this is what God's telling you to do. I'm going, well, I, I'm going to step out because I believe that this is what God's telling me to do. And you want to be able to do this. The people were told to go into the promised land. They said, we're not going. God said, fine, you're going to wander around for 38 years. Oh, okay, we'll go. We're going to the promised land. And they got beat. And I love this picture. They, you were chased out like bee, a swarm of bees attacking. Uh, and if you've ever seen a huge swarm of bees, it's kind of scary. Uh, I was working at a, at, a, at a place here when I first got here. And a swarm of bees up at the loves covered the entire canopy of the, of the gas pump. And I'm going, that's a lot of bees. Yeah, that was thousands or even millions of bees. I mean, they covered the entire canopy over, over both lanes of it. And it's like, that's a lot of bees. And you picture them being chased as bees. <laughs> a swarm that big would chase anybody anywhere it wanted to go. And this is what he's saying. They chased you away as bees do. And you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord would not hearken unto you nor give ear to you. When we totally are disobedient to God, sometimes he'll just say, fine, I'm just going to let you wallow around in the mud for a while. Mm -hmm. Because if we're that disobedient, then this was a serious disobedience. Because they said we're going up. Moses said, don't go up. God's not going. And they still went up. You know, this was not even one where it was... We think we're doing what God told us to do. They knew they were doing what God told them not to do. Okay? They said, we're not going in. God says, fine, you're wandering the desert. They said, we're going to go up. And Moses gave them God's message. Don't go up. God is not with you. There was no question of what they were doing. And when they got beat, God said, I'm not even listening to you. You were that disobedient. I'm not listening to you for a while. And it took Moses to pray for them. 
to for, for their forgiveness. They were told not to go. He's not with you. And they, and they did anyway. Whoa. So you abode in Kadesh many days according to the days that you abode there. And that's where we're going to stop at the end of chapter 1. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you. Lord, we ask that you help us to always hear your voice and start listening closely to know what you're asking us to do and, and walk in what you would have us to do. And we thank you for all of this and all that's going on here at the church and ask for your blessing in your son's precious name. Amen.